Church, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn in them to John 15. And as we remain standing this morning, we are going to hear God's Word to us this morning. So let us read John 15, verses 12 through 17 together. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. All right, so uh, yes, we pick back up in John 15 today. And I love, 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 love this passage. It seems like the Lord has fit it perfectly into the life of our church. We're just finishing up in uh, Foundations course, which is our new members class that we are doing here. And I feel like this fits really, really well with those of you who are participating in that, but also fits really well for you and I to remind ourselves of what it is that we have covenanted together as God's people to do in the local church. Um, I love this church. And shameless plug, I hope that you'll come back for the potluck tonight so that we can demonstrate that love with one another and and just free open fellowship together. Uh, That's why we're trying to schedule these things once a month Um, so that we can have time that's just unfettered, uh, uh, unstructed time together. And I I love those moments with you, and I hope that you love them as well. I know you do. Um, I have heard it said somewhere, and I I cannot recall where uh, for the life of me. I think it was the great 17th century Baptist William Keach who said that the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the church is the most certain and essential doctrine by which believers make known to the world the love of God. Do you believe that, church? That the church is the most essential doctrine, sensual and certain doctrine by which believers, you and I, make known to the world the love of God. And I, for one, could not agree more with that. What he's saying essentially is something that I talk about, I even posted this past week on, we talked about this morning in our foundations course, that, the, that our ecclesiology, okay, big word, ecclesiology is a fancy word for doctrine of the church, is not a passing consideration for us, it's not something that we just get to go and make up on our own, like how do we do church together, but that the way we do it is constructed and given in scripture so that we might display the gospel brightly. That you can't display, you can't preach, you can't declare the gospel apart from the church. That God intends for his gospel to be united closely to the life of the church. Um, And and, and I believe that wholeheartedly. In fact, it's one of the reasons why I remain a convictional Baptist in in who I am, or a congregationalist, if you will, as well, in my understanding of ministry over these almost nearly 25 years of ministry. Modern Baptists uh, can be (laughs) um, a a frustrating reality because sometimes we're not always the model of health. But when it's done right, and you know if you've seen it done right, and I hope we are aspiring to do it right here at Grace, um, man, we can be a bastion of sound doctrine, 
a bastion of uh, the beauty of the gospel when it's done right. And so I remain. I remain and you remain by virtue of being here this morning, Baptist, for whatever that means. Because as, again, as I see in Scripture, I see in the church this living, you and I breathing, visible local church that it's our job as we live and love one another, as we see in this text this morning, to visibly display the gospel. That if you want to be effective in your evangelistic witness, let me tell you, you cannot do it if you are not connected to God's people. It doesn't work that way. It's not how God has designed it. No, there's nothing, I believe this all my heart, there's nothing that is more beautiful than a simple church living under the authority of God's word, being shepherded by shepherds like our elders here at Grace Church. We walk shoulder to shoulder together, loving and exhorting one another and caring for one another in a way that we don't see in other places around the world. It's what makes the church so compelling when we love each other this way. Yep. Amen? what we're meant to do. It's not always easy, right? We annoy each other sometimes. Can we say that? Can we, can we, can, like my little brother annoys me sometimes. Even at 46 years old, he still annoys me on almost a weekly basis. And he lives a long way away. But sometimes we do that. But it's because the gospel is so beautiful that you and I can still love each other even though when we aggravate one another in so many different ways. And so I want to talk about that this text this morning, John 15, 12 through 17, from that vantage point, that because God, and we've been talking about the vineyard, the church, God's people, that God has created this beautiful vineyard of his people that is to bear fruit, which is what we've been talking about the last few weeks, to bear fruit um, through the vine, his son Jesus, because that is what God has designed us to be, there is no greater display of the gospel than the sacrificial and mutually edifying communion of the local church. This is what we're called to. Friend, this morning, I don't know, we got new people here, we got people visiting, and I just want to encourage you that wherever the Lord, if you're not providentially in this local area, like be connected, find a local church, be known and be loved by that church, even if that church has its warts, because trust me, all of us do. And I hope that's what you'll find at the very end of this sermon. So today what we find in this text is Christ's instructions to his disciples. And essentially what we find here is his instructions are what is necessary for the church to have a rich communion together. And we're going to look at three, essentially three marks this morning together about what that looks like. And I'll just go ahead and give them to you on the front end. That Christian love or Christian community is uniquely Christ-centered community, Christ-centered love. We'll see in the first few verses there. We will see... As well, that Christian community trusts in the open-hearted friendship of Jesus towards his people. And then we will finish up with the fact that true Christian community produces abiding fruit that, is, that, that comes out of our election, comes out of God's saving work. We'll see that in the last couple of verses together. So let's look at that first point. Christian love. What is Christian love? Christian love is unique, uniquely Christ-centered. Again, let's remind ourselves, this is my commandment. Jesus says to you that you love one another as I have loved you. Very critical contingency there, as I have loved you. And then he goes on to explain it even further in verse 13. No greater love, um, no, greater love than uh, no man than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. And what does he command you to do? To love one another. 
Why? Because that love is a demonstration of his love for us. See, Jesus says there is a stand, sets a standard, if you will, uh, for us in terms of being his people. And it says very clearly here, love each other. You and I are called to love each other. Do you know that? I mean, really love one another. And we love each other the way that, because he has loved us. And as J.C. Ryle says in his wonderful commentary, it's a point worth returning to again and again for the believer. Because we can't ever get enough of this. You and I can never get loved enough and feel loved enough because this is what it means to be human. And we never can learn more in depth of what it means to love one another than to consider it often. Uh, in fact, this is not the first time John's talked about this issue. We see it back in John 14, or John 13, excuse me, verses 25 through 35, where he tells his disciples, they will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. John intends for us, and Jesus particularly intends for us to take that point seriously. In fact, he'll take it so seriously that he caps this little section here, verse 12. This is my command to you that you love one another as I have loved you. And in verse 17, what does he say? He says it very clearly there. These things I command you so that you will love one another. So there's this little sandwich there of Christian love. And everything in the middle is everything it means to be Christian love for one another. And so this idea then, this standard, this of uniquely loving one another is absolutely essential to the Christian. And what it should signal to us is that God intends his people to see the seriousness of this command and its essential aspect to us actually bearing real fruit. You can't bear real fruit apart from the church, and you can't bear real fruit from apart from love for one another. And, and, and it remains the standard by which God builds his church. The problem is, there's more to this command than that, though. What has Jesus given us this command for? Well, he's given this command to us because it's beyond our grasp. Amen. You can't read this passage and go, oh, wow, that feels heavy. And I think Jesus gives us this command and gives his disciples this command because he realizes how incapable we are of actually fulfilling this to its maximum degree. Why? Because only Jesus has loved us perfectly. Only Jesus has loved us completely. We fail to meet the standard of love on, on this so many, on so many levels on every day of our lives. This command shows us how utterly limited we are in living in such a life and how we fail to meet the standards of God's own law. Because that's what the standards of God's law are. They are love. Again, as uh, Richard Phillips, a pastor, Presbyterian pastor over in, in the Carolinas, says, learn men seldom love close friendship with the unlearned. And people in high positions usually isolate themselves from, from those beneath them because, they are more, because at that point they love to be more admired than known and loved. But that's not just reserved for that group. It's for reserved for all of us. All of us struggle with that. All of us struggle with classism and struggle with being known and being loved and really loving others, particularly those of the household of faith. When Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what is the greatest commandment? What is Jesus' answer? And he gives it twofold, right? The first is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And what Jesus is doing in answering this question is, he says, you can't, you can't divide God's word against itself. You can't 
have a love for God without a love for your neighbor, and you can't have a love for your neighbor without a love for your God. To, to, to love God with heart, soul, and mind, and to love neighbor as yourself is to sum up the entirety of God's commands, His Ten Commandments particularly, which is the essence of what? The law of love. Like when God gives us His law, it's not just religious things that we are to do, but it is a it is, it is the very fabric of everything God is and therefore calling us to, a, to love. And so if you look at the commandments, you see really two tables of the law. The first four commandments are what? The table of God, love for God, right? And then the last six are the table of love for one another. And this is what Jesus goes many times and says, look, you can say, if, you know, uh, if you've lusted at a woman, you've, you know, you've committed adultery. If you've hated your brother, you have committed murder. It's because he goes, the, the, the law of love calls us to go deeper into these commandments than just the mere surface religious you know, accommodation to it. This command is given such that it provokes us to deep reflection, and it provokes us, at least it should, some level of repentance among us as his disciples, his disciples then, and shows that this command is a, is a supernatural in nature. That if this is going to be real in our lives, and if this is going to be an increasing reality in our lives, and I do believe it is, it is something supernatural that happens as we are living in the perfect love of Christ for us. That any, any effort to true love must emerge from God's love for us in Christ first. Amen. Otherwise, it's impossible to love. Truly, at least. So how is Jesus the standard of this love? Why is it that Jesus is the standard of this love? What is it for us? And he says it here in verse 13, no greater love than this than he give his life for his friends. Now, what's he saying there? Well, he's not sending his disciples out to be martyrs. He's establishing the rule of love, which is himself. He himself is the rule of love. He's the only one who meets that standard. See, you and I can do lots of noble things for each other. We can even give our lives to one another. You, we, we've heard of servicemen who love their country and serve us in such ways. And we've heard stories of grandfathers, one I recently read, a grandfather who goes in, into the river after his grandson and to save him who's drowning, but then doesn't let go of his, wraps him so tightly that they both drown. It's a tragic story when you think about it. But that love, is, as noble as it is, is nothing compared to the love of Christ because God comes in and gets us and then actually does save us. Amen. See, Jesus is different in his sacrifice than our sacrifice. One, because he didn't have to die. So you and I are on a pathway to death because of sin. We're destined to die because of the fall. We're destined to die because of the fall. All women, all women, all children uh, here in all times and spaces. But Jesus came willingly to die. Yes, there's, again, great examples of sacrifice. Uh, again, I'm thinking, you know, if you're a This Is Us fan, uh, the father who goes back in after the dog, right? I'm sorry if I'm messing up the show for you. If you haven't, by this time, watch this. This is your fault. Um, but he seems like everything's fine, but he gets to the hospital, and he, he ends up dying from smoke inhalation. Noble, but insufficient. There's nothing... We can do noble enough to, super, to, to exceed the love of Jesus. He didn't have to die. We're on a crash course for it. 
See, this is not Jesus. He didn't die a death. Um, he didn't die without purpose. And death has no claim over him, and that's why he could defeat death. That's what we believe with all our hearts. Second thing we know about this and why Jesus is this, the only essential standard is because he, he intentionally gave his life for ours. Like, like we might get caught up in the urgency of the moment, spring to action to take, you know, take on some kind of noble deed for one another and, and, and without thought go in and try to save. I mean, I know I would do the same thing for my children. If someone was, my, my family was under threat, you probably would do the same thing, right? But that's not the way Jesus dies for us. He didn't just spring to action just kind of haphazardly. His actions are the very heartbeat of his earthly purpose. It's, it springs out of eternity. That wonderful relationship between him and the Father. And they, and, they, and they said, and they made a covenant to save a people for himself. See, Jesus' love is not a momentary, fickle love. It's an eternal love. It's a love that never fails. See, Jesus died, thirdly, for us when we really were not his friends. So you and I might be like, I'll die for my children, I'll die for my wife, I'll die for most of you, because I love you. I say most. <laughs> hey, look, guys, I'm human. I know, I know where I'm going to fail. I, I would actually, I hope, I hope I would in my, most, in my worst moment. But the practice is that that's never Jesus's. I, I, he will, it will never be his disposition towards you and I. I'll never, like, I will fail in my own fickle heart to make the right decision, but Jesus will not. And he does it for his enemies. Would you die for your enemy in a heartbeat? I would bet you'll at least think about it. That's not Jesus. We know this, right? Romans 5, 6 through 8. Romans 5, it's just, I mean, it's the passage that, 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 that uh, drives everything, right? For while we were still weak and at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for the one who, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps he might, for a good person, one would die, dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. This is why Jesus is uniquely responsible and uniquely capable of setting the standard of love. And so he's not calling us to martyrdom. He's calling us to rest in his sacrificial love for us, that that's what marks true Christian communion, true Christian love. And so what does that mean for us this morning? How, how, how might we live this command out? Well, I think there's a couple things that, that, are, that, are, that are come to mind for me. One is we must relate to one another through the person and work of Jesus alone. And that seems obvious, though, but, but, but think about, again, I want to consider something J.C. Ryle put in this commentary. It says, we recognize that all are beloved, whether they're weak, low, ignorant, or uh, whatever. None are disposed from the love of God. And so we should love each other the same way regardless of what may divide us. If Christ's love for us, loved us when we were yet enemies of God, we should hold out the same kind of love for one another the best that we can, even outsiders who may be different from us on many issues. The second thing that I would think of in terms of applying this to ourselves is, is hopefully pretty clear. We should see our failure to love one another regularly. We should wrestle with our failure to love one another regular, regularly. 
It, it should drive us to return to Christ honestly and stand before the cross honestly about where we fail and where he meets and completes what we fail to do. But there's a second point that I want us to wrestle with. And it's that Christian community trusts in the open, hard friendship of Jesus. See, we don't have a God who's far from us. Amen? We don't have a God who's, we have a God who's near to us. That's what we see here in verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. See, what Jesus is doing in this passage is he's reordering something that is, it's, it's, it blows our minds. He reorders what it means to be a servant. He's not dismissing that we are servants, but he's reordering how we relate to him as his servants, that his servants actually are his friends. See, Jesus is not afraid to raise others up, and he's not afraid to lower himself down, as we see in Philippians 2. That is so contrary to what we see in the world and how we lead and love people, do we not? Because we, we rarely see people in high authority lower themselves to those below them, and rarely do we have those who feel confident enough in their own authority to be able to lift others up to them. But Jesus is not like that. He does not demean, does not demean his character. He does not demean his lordship by his condescension to us. Amen? that he would be friends with his servants. Nor does it erase, by the way, and let's make sure we're clear about this, it doesn't erase the, the hierarchy of relationship between us and, and God and, and all the good design God has put in the world about what is about authority. Our world likes to take and disintegrate that these days and level it, but that's not true either. So he's not erasing those things. He's just pumping them full of meaning. That, that, that in spite of God and all the structures that God puts in place, that, that, a, that a husband and a wife can be meaningful friends, that there's order to that relationship. And that you and I as pastor and congregation can have meaningful relationship, although there's order to that relationship. Amen? It's one of the things we try to do here often is we don't try to put a whole lot of separation between the pastors and the congregation because we are first members of this church first. And me, and me and my wife are first brother and sister in Christ before her husband and wife because that will be what lasts for eternity. So Jesus reorders what we know of friendship. He reorders what we know of service to one another. And so to be clear, the disciples saw themselves as servants. Peter, I'm a servant of the apostle Jesus Christ from 2 Peter 1.1. Paul says it. I'm a bond servant of Jesus from Romans 1.1 and Titus 1.1. Moses died in the epitaph. Was, uh, he will, here is the lies, the servant of the Lord in Deuteronomy 34. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will what? Serve the Lord in Joshua 24. And of course, Jesus, David himself identified, is identified by his own God that this is my servant. But their service is rooted in something very different. It's rooted in the friendship of God, right? So that friends can be subordinate in subordinate positions and still be confidants and companions, both with Jesus and with one another. Amen? See, I think about a friendship I have with Joe Stegall, who is the past, lead pastor at Providence. He's preached here a couple times. When we first started Providence and we went through a really, really tough first year or two, we made some decisions to structure our staff because there was a bunch of young guys leading this effort, me, Joe, and John, who was the, one of the other pastors there. 
and we were trying to figure out how to do this in a way that we could lead healthily, and we decided that we, even though we were going to try to lead equally in friendship and companionship, we still needed one of us to step up to the role of like a, if you will, lead or teaching pastor or whatever. And so uh, we kind of drew straw. No, we actually, me and John just formed a coup and said, Joe, you're it. And, um, and it was tough because Joe's one of my best friends. And uh, there was a time when we were going to a football match at Georgia Tech on a Thursday night, and Jordan's dad was driving us down there. And uh, Jordan's dad asked us the hard, one of the hardest questions I've ever been asked. And me and Joe, he goes, so uh, can you guys really handle this? Can you handle the fact that Joe's going to be, in some sense, your boss on some, in some ways, but he's also going to be your best friend? Can that actually happen? And... Uh, and we didn't know the answer to that. But God made it work. God made it work because friendship and servitude are not mutually exclusive realities. Not according to God's economy. So let's be careful, though, right, that we don't fall into the world's trap of erasing good structure, good order, right? Good, in some sense, we won't use the word hierarchy. I think that's a helpful word. It's fallen under disrepute these days and minimizing the design that God has put into the world. But that doesn't change the level playing foot on which he calls his children. We love each other and these things are there for our good. No, Jesus is still Lord, even as he is our friend. And that's beautiful. It's unfathomable to us. Friendship with Jesus doesn't erode the proper order of our relationship with him or the beautiful and orderly design of this world. No, friendship with Jesus infuses a good, the goodness of God in purpose and meaning in our lives. So what marks our friendship with one another? Well, our friendship with one another is, it says here in this passage, I have revealed to you all that the Father has revealed to me. He's pouring out his heart, his plans, his purposes to his disciples. Like that's, think about that, your deepest relationships. Are they not the ones where there's trust built, where you can pour your heart out to them and they really know who you are? Here's Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, Hebrews tells us, and he's pouring out his heart to his people and that is the mark of friendship. See, our friendship here this morning isn't some kind of sentimental friendship, friends. Do not mistake this. It's a friendship rooted in the revelation of God of himself to us. And so therefore, if you want to deepen in your friendship with one another, it must have this at the center of it. Because that is the mark that Jesus says is the mark of his friendship. I don't call you servants, but I call you friends. Why? Because I've made known to you all that the Father has given to me. This is the nature of who God is. Those are the friends of God. Those who are resting and trusting in God's self-revelation of himself. There's one other time in the, in the scriptures where Jesus, where there's a man who's considered a friend of God. You want to know where it is? Who it is? Abraham. Abraham. And we see it in the New Testament. We see it in James, that he was a friend of God. Why was he a friend of God? Namely because God would speak to him. That's how he became a friend of God. And that when God spoke, what did Abraham do? He believed by faith. So friendship with God necessitates a trusting what God has revealed and believing in what God has revealed by faith. So if you want to deepen your friendship with one another, there's no better place to start than this, right? Amen? The Word of God. God pouring out His heart to us 
through his word. I love, again, Richard Phillips was helpful on this. I love, 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 love this. The Bible is not only a holy book for us to revere, but it's also Jesus' disclosure of his own heart for us to treasure as friends. That is what it means to be friends with the God of the universe. But it also prompts us to know that that infuses meaning in our prayers because as God speaks to us, what does that invite us into? To speak to Him. To pray to Him, to cry out to Him, to bring all of our concerns and all of our mess to Him. Friends, this is why we pray on Wednesday nights. That's why I hope that you'll make that a place where you come. It's, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's a bit awkward, but it's okay because it's not about us. It's about us crying out to God together. Because Jesus has made known himself known to us. The last point that I want to wrestle with this morning is this, what we find here in verse 16, that Christian community produces a body fruit of our election. Look what it says there. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever I ask in my, you ask in my, my name, my father in my name, he may give to you. There's two choosings here. There's certainly the choosing whereby Jesus is setting aside and appointing these disciples who will have an apostolic office. But then there's a choosing that's an election type of choosing, where God is a choosing a people for himself. And some commentators want to just limit it to just the idea that Jesus is speaking about uh, appointing these disciples to their apostolic office and that it has nothing to do beyond that. But that's, there's a problem with that because he says, I appoint you to abiding fruit. That your fruit will continue to abide. So that means the work of election goes beyond just this initial group of disciples into the very people that they're preaching the gospel to. And therefore, the snowball begins to roll, does it not? This idea here is more than just the appointing them to the apostolic office. It's, it's a fruit that they are appointed that bear, to bear fruit that bears more fruit and more fruit and makes more disciples and more disciples. And guess what we've seen throughout church history? That very thing. This is what we've seen in the historic church. Therefore, it's entirely appropriate for us to say the election was for the disciples' apostolic office, but also extends to all those to whom they would go to preach the gospel. And again, that snowball effect begins to roll downhill. It's not true, and it's not helpful to think that this is the Jesus, uh, God, uh, well, he's, he's, he's selecting these guys, and therefore, but everything else, God's going to leave the chance. That sounds goofy to me. You know why it sounds goofy to me? Because what that makes God is, is capricious. It makes him manipulative. That God only, only does what he wants just to kind of manipulate the system. That, my friends, is a puppet master. But that's not what the scriptures say. The, the scriptures give us a picture of God who's sovereign over all things. And that all events have meaning and purpose in them. And God is involved in every fabric of everything that goes on in your life. Yet, you and I joyfully receive that freely. It's a mystery. I get it. I understand it. And it's something that we will struggle with till the end of time. But I appreciate, and I've mentioned before, um, Spurgeon's words on this, using the railroad track uh, motif, right? We have in Scripture 
this call to trust in that God is sovereign over all the affairs of men, yet there's this call in Scripture for men to return, repent, and believe, and obey, and all the wonderful things there. So these, there's both these things. In, a, in our economy, and the way that we think about these things, these don't make sense to us, do they? But it's like two railroad tracks. You and I can walk down that railroad track for as long as we want to, but those two railroad tracks will never meet. You know, forget about the whole crossing sections there where eventually will happen, right? But we're just saying in terms of this, if you just put this and you walk them out, but if you lift your eyes to the horizon to something far down the road, what do you see in those two railroad tracks? They emerge in something far beyond our comprehension, right? They kind of does this in the horizon. I think these two things which are hard for us to wrestle with are something that's, that makes complete sense in the sovereignty and the economy of God. There is a mystery there. And we have to remember things places like Romans 9, 20 through 21. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? And has the potter no right to the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Yeah, that's in the Bible. And it's hard. Here's what we know, though. And here's what we live in. To simply live by the precept that only God knows the mystery of his electing purposes, and they're not for you and I to know. But that there is real meaningful meaning and joy in his call to us to go preach the gospel so that when we go this, he uses it sovereignly for his purposes to call people out into salvation. It's what it has been. It's what it, and this is what we've seen beautifully come throughout God's, the history that God has put in church. The purpose of our election is to go and bear fruit, abiding fruit. You can't separate your salvation from the fruit in which God wants you to bear. We've, again, we've been dealing with that the last couple of weeks. But it comes very, very clear here, and especially if we think about places like Ephesians chapter 2, 4 through 10. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated, him with, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages you might show the immeasurable riches, the, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But in case you're wondering, it doesn't end there. We are the workmanship of God, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I don't have to know all the answers. I don't know. I have to know about how the engine works. All I need to know is I get my car, I turn, I turn the key on, and it works, and I drive the car somewhere. Right? Do not put me under the hood of, of, of any vehicle. Not going to go well. Paul Tiger probably has that one now, right? He's very, very intuitive when it comes to these kinds of things. Sorry, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, brother. But this is, this, I mean, this is where we are. And that's sometimes what we've got to wrestle with. So let's just let's finish up. What does all this mean to us in terms of what it means for us as a church? We are a church that loves one another only and always through the love of Jesus for us. That's the measure of our love for one another. We are people that is entrenched in the friendship of Jesus who pours his heart out to us, 
And we are people who are living out our election through our fruit. So here's some thoughts I have before we finish up. In light of that, may I encourage us that we dare not forsake the needed call to inspect our hearts regularly regarding how we treat the church globally, locally, and individually. God is in the business of building his church, not you and me. And God's in the business of using this church the way he wishes to use his church. So don't get so caught up and thinking that the way we do church here in this space and this time, however that may be, is the, is the measure of all churches of all places and all, and all times. It's just not true. And we should treat other local churches with respect and love and care. But, I might say, we should individually be lo- located in a local church under the authority of God's word, under the leadership of qualified elders. This is something that we should do. We should not treat the church as a commodity. Church is not here just for your service. The church is not just here. You know, I, I, it it, it kind of bothers me. I'm not, you know, I, and, I, and I will. We partner with other churches all the time to do our summer camp and whatnot too. But, but it kind of bothers me when churches kind of have the hopscotch thing. And so my church doesn't have this, so therefore I'm going to take my, my, this over here for this part of my family to this group and do this ministry. Um, there's some there's some legitimacy to that, but I think that if it goes too far, it can become quite detrimental to the unity of the fellowship of the believing. It's not a commodity, and neither is a church a culturally like-minded clique or tribe. Friends, we got people tearing the church apart because of this kind of mess today. I hope that never happens here. I don't think it has, but don't. We are not a culturally like-minded clicker tribe. Don't let outside forces tear apart the sweet fellowship of the believing because of what Christ has died for. It's not worth it. I see so much not only in the division and the baseless mistreatment of the church today, and I, I hope I'm wrong about this, but I feel that some folks are going to go back and regret it in the years to come. Second thing I want to say here is that if the mark of friendship with Jesus is resting and trusting in his word, as we mentioned earlier, we dare not make any other non-essential or tertiary issue central to our friendship. If we need so, if we are so in desperate need of such, such narrow uh, accommodation to our particular affinities and our particular uh, favorite little, little side issues, there's, that's not going to enrich in your fellowship with the believing. It's not. I'm always more enriched by people who are different than me. Typically. And I would pray that that would be the same thing here. And then last, if our election is granted so that we are to bear much fruit, we dare not forsake our fruit's connection to the love of Christ that he's appointed for the church to live out. Your fruit here, friend, whatever that may be, is for the purpose of building up this body and loving this body and, of course, loving the global church as much as God would lead you. But primarily, man, let's live that out here. Live out our love and live out our generosity and live out our time and live out our service and live out 
our, our commitment, live out our hospitality in such a way that that fruit bears forth as something so visible, so beautiful, so that the whole world says there's something unique about this group of people that frankly, I mean, you just can't find anywhere else. Friends, this is what Jesus would call us to. This is the, 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 the mark, the marks of a church that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. And I pray, I pray that will continue to bear more and more fruit here as the years and the decades unfold. Jesus, help us now as we finish up this morning. As we prepare for the Lord's table this morning.